This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth planners and investment managers who offer unwavering support in challenging times. Visit CanDoWealth.com for more information. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Each week we look at three pieces from the magazine with the writers behind them. I'm William Moore, The Spectator's Features Editor. On this week's episode, I'll be talking about likely scenarios for the end of the war in Ukraine, hearing an extract from Matthew Paris's interview with Nigel Bigger on the legacy of colonialism, and asking whether greyhound racing has had its day. First up, how will it end? That is the question that The Spectator's Russia correspondent, Owen Matthews, considers for his cover piece this week. He joins me now, along with Rose Gottemerler, former Deputy Secretary General of NATO. Owen, to start with, could you outline for our listeners the different scenarios for the end of the war in Ukraine? And of those scenarios, which one do you think is the most likely? Huh. Well, um, my piece is not an exercise in crystal ball gazing. It's really about highlighting some issues with the end game of this war that I think are underappreciated, but actually strategically enormously important. And those two, the, 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 the two major issues which I think are underappreciated is, firstly, the, there's a major disconnect between the Ukrainian vision of a total victory, which includes retaking Crimea and the rebel republics of Donbass, and the primary strategic interests of NATO and the United States in particular. And I start off the piece with the reporting that we know from the Washington Post, that, uh, and I'm sure Rose knows at first hand, that the first question that General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, put in his initial briefing back in October of 2021, when he presented that intelligence that suggested that Putin was possibly likely to actually invade Ukraine. The first question that Milley posed is how to maintain an international rules-based order against a nuclear-armed country while avoiding World War III. And the second issue is that there is a underappreciated, I think, amount of escalation that is still left in Putin's arsenal. Because we still we hear a tremendous amount about how bad and undisciplined the Russian troops are. I think that's probably true. How Putin's running out of high accuracy weapons. He's using anti-aircraft defense S-300 missiles, S-400 missiles as offensive missiles. All those things are also true. But I think something that's underappreciated is the extent to which Putin can actually enormously and continuously escalate dumb weaponry and manpower to push the Ukrainians or prevent the Ukrainians from achieving the fast military successes in the field that somewhat over-optimistically led themselves and the world to expect. Well, Rose, I would love to get your opinion on, as Owen puts it, the primary strategic interests of NATO. And do you agree with him that there may come a point as this war goes on that the strategic interests of NATO begin to diverge from the interests of Kiev in this war? I think it's a little bit 
unfair to begin with, and I'm going at Owen right away, you'll hear, but it's a little bit unfair to compare where the United States and NATO are now with Mark Milley in October of 2021. Recollect what the expectations were at that point. The United States and NATO really thought that what we were looking at was a rapid fired defeat of Ukraine and the end of the Zelensky government. We just, frankly, all of us underestimated the Ukrainians at that point. But it's been very clear from the outset, and President Biden has been very clear to underscore that he does not want to see this invasion of Ukraine turn into a general war in Europe and escalate to World War III. It's true that that is still very much the overarching war aim and strategic objective of the United States and the NATO alliance. But at the same time, I think in the intervening period, a real sense of hope has developed and confidence that the Ukrainians could come out victorious from this war. And that is at the level of of working with Ukraine, between NATO and Ukraine, and between Ukraine and the United States. That is the overarching objective now. As President Biden said this past summer in talking to the New York Times, he said, look, we need to help working with the Ukrainians to get them to the place where they are in the best possible position for a successful peace negotiation. And I think that continues to be the U.S. objective at the present time. And Rose, when you say victorious in You mean including the Donbass region and Crimea? I mean, total 1991 boundaries of Ukraine. Is that that the definition of victorious in in the war from NATO's perspective? Victorious in the end of the day. But here I emphasize that... Ukraine must never give up on the principle of territorial integrity and sovereignty according to that border that was agreed at the breakup of the Soviet Union and is inscribed in legally binding documents, including between Russia and Ukraine, that the borders that existed at the breakup of the Soviet Union, including Crimea and the Donbass, belong to Ukraine. And so Ukraine must never give up on that on that principle of territorial integrity and sovereignty. When it reacquires those territories is a different different question. And here I may differ somewhat from what President Zelensky thinks, but I recollect, of course, that through the 70 years of the Soviet Union's existence, the United States and its allies never recognized the Baltic states as part of the USSR. They were always recognized as independent and separate. And so I think we just have to, whatever we do, hold fast to that principle. And if it takes some time to get there, that's the way it goes in geopolitics. And Owen, I, I what about your thoughts on that are? Because in the piece, you, you essentially say that when it comes to Crimea, it would turn into a very different type of war than what it currently is if Ukraine were to push into Crimea to try and reclaim it. I wonder if you could tell our listeners a, a little about that. Rose, you're, you're clearly right about the facts of international law that indeed, not only after the fall of the Soviet Union, but also in the, you know, the Budapest Memorandum and so on, Russia has repeatedly confirmed and then broken the territorial integrity of Ukraine. That's a fact. There is a practical issue, which I think strategically but morally significant here. And that is that even as we acknowledge that the Russian annexation of Crimea was completely illegal in 2014, that the referendum that was held there was far from free or fair. But I think there is a fundamental truth to that referendum that the majority of the population of Crimea does not wish to be Ukrainian. 
And that raises a deeply uncomfortable question about that specific end phase of the war, if we're talking about the reconquest of Crimea. And that is, are the Western allies in the business of sponsoring a war not of liberation, but a war that will be seen by the locals, certainly in the rebel republics of Donbass, because the pro-Kiev people have been terrorized into leaving, there's been de facto ethnic cleansing. The people who remain in the rebel republics of Donbass and the people who are in the Crimea will see that as a war of conquest and a war of occupation. And that's a completely different kettle of fish to the current war, which is liberating illegally annexed territory and recovering people who are, have been annexed to Russia against their will. And so that's really the, 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 the major moral question, I think, of the end game of this war. And furthermore, I'd pick up on something that you, that, that, that you said, which I think is a slight paradox, is that you mentioned both victory and successful negotiation. So I think that those two things, if I, I, I certainly agree with the successful negotiation part, but unfortunately, we then have to ask negotiation about what? One of the uncomfortable truths, I think, further uncomfortable truths, is that actually the end game of this war is going to involve some kind of land for peace negotiation. And that's an enormous difficulty for Zelensky, because I think no Ukrainian president can survive that kind of signing off on that kind of deal and remain in power. And, and that's one of the major issues with the end game of the war. Rose, I wonder if you want to, to respond to that. And I also wanted to get your thoughts on, let's say that Ukraine does push on to Crimea, to Donbass. Do you think that the NATO support for Ukraine will, will, will hold in that scenario? And if it starts to falter, do you think there's any chance that Ukraine would be able to, to reclaim those regions without NATO support? Look, I don't think that we need to submit to Putin's Russification policies and destabilization in those areas. And really the creation of, of criminal regimes, particularly in, in the Donbass. Crimea is another matter. There they have the big naval base at Sevastopol. They have, of course, big geostrategic interests. But I'm not arguing that we should submit to those big geostrategic issues. Countries have basing agreements all the time. In fact, Russia for 25 years at a successful basing agreement with Ukraine to maintain and operate its naval base at Sevastopol. So I think, honestly, uh, I don't want to seem like I'm saying we'll return to the status quo ante, full stop. That's not going to happen. Everybody understands that. But what the new status quo, I think, will be must be shaped by the regime of international law and basic principles in the UN Charter related to territorial integrity and sovereignty. That's why NATO is fighting so hard to not, of course, in Ukraine with Ukrainians, but fighting so hard to support them on the military and economic front in order to be able to ensure that those principles remain intact and furthermore continue to serve us well going going forward. The other thing I'd like to mention in this regard is a phenomenon I've seen in other frozen conflicts. For example, in, in the, the Transnistria region of Moldova, as Moldova has begun to turn its face westward toward the EU, the Transnistrians also, you know, somewhat a sketchy regime, but they've begun to get increasingly interested, hey, I want some of that. I would rather be heading toward the EU than continue to be in this gloomy state uh, neither east nor west, and 
constantly uh, beholden to Russia for support. So I think we could see, and one outcome I'm sure about for this war is it decisively sets Ukraine on the footpath toward uh, eventual EU membership, eventual NATO membership, and uh, with its face toward the West. And to be honest with you, despite the fact, yes, there are Russian speakers with a lot of allegiances to Russia in the Donbass and in Crimea, I can see them also saying, hey, I want some of that going forward, because Russia is going to come out of this war. Unfortunately, you know, I'm a long-standing Russia expert. I've worked for many years with Russia. I have huge respect for my Russian counterparts and for the culture and the history of, of Russia. But at the moment, I see them coming out of this war, unfortunately, much weakened and in a destabilized situation. I don't know what exactly that forfends, but I, I fear a disaster for Russia coming out of this war. Let me also emphasize, I've been hearing just today that the Russians are insisting that NATO is bent on the dismemberment of Russia. Why would NATO want that kind of destabilization on their eastern borders? That is a ridiculous, I think, talking point coming out of Moscow. And I just wanted to stress at this moment that that is not one of NATO's strategic objectives by any means. Oh, and I'd like to get your thoughts on that. If the war does end up being a disaster for Russia, could it lead to destabilization, even if that isn't a strategic goal of NATO? And is that something that you're worried about? Well, I mean, firstly, I mean, amen to Undersecretary Goodmiller's prediction that ultimately the pull of prosperity and freedom and European membership is actually ultimately more important and is clearly superior to the sort of very underwhelming and frankly negative Christian fundamentalist ultranationalist Russia that I think we're going to be seeing becoming a poorer and darker place. Certainly that is the case. It's more attractive to be a member of a prosperous, free polity than one that is authoritarian and dark. But I have to pick up on something. I mean, obviously, Undersecretary Gertmel is a very distinguished diplomat, both in in the State Department and in NATO. But there is something fundamentally paradoxical in what you just said, Rose, and that was that you both ruled out the possibility of a return to the status quo ante, but also insisted that international law would be respected. And I frankly don't actually see any realistic situation where both those things can be true at the same time. Well, I think we come back to where I began, and that is we stand for the principle of international law. If it takes some time to get there in the case of Ukraine and its sovereignty and territorial integrity, that is uh, an example we've seen many times in history. But, you know, the, the history of Europe during the period after World War II is that very history where there was that iron curtain down across the middle of Europe and it took that period after World War II until the fall of the wall and the end of the Cold War for for that barrier to come down and for Europe to be, as we like to say, united and whole and free. So thinking back on those examples, I can imagine that we may have a difficult and and lengthy negotiation to get where we need to go. But I do want to stress that victory is associated also with diplomacy as well as with war fighting. And diplomacy can be part of the vital path to to victory. In fact, that has been very much uh, the case in the past, even just setting down uh, the conditions for a ceasefire and the conditions for uh, troops to 
as I put it, draw apart and begin to return to their home bases. So those two things are, are linked together and netted together. Rose, as the chief negotiator in the New START Treaty, which for listeners who aren't aware is, is the most recent nuclear proliferation treaty between the US and Russia, I wonder if you could share with our listeners what lessons perhaps we should take when it comes to treaties between Russia and the West and what, what, what lessons there are to be learned from your experience there. And I also wonder, when it comes to concerns about escalation of the war and, and escalation into nuclear conflict, is that something that worries you? And are there elements that you've seen in this war that, that, that worry you about the possibility of escalation? After my ringing endorsement of diplomacy a moment ago, I will say that the record is somewhat mixed in the realm of uh, arms control treaties and agreements with the Russian Federation. They have, and I think I can say, underscoring the fact that we currently have some compliance problems with regard to the New START Treaty, but they have continued to abide by the central limits of the New START Treaty, and they are continuing other aspects of the implementation regime, such as continuing to notify the United States of any changes in the status of the strategic nuclear forces, how they're deployed, whether they're in maintenance, whether they are moving from one place to another. So they are continuing to be open and transparent and fulfill their responsibilities, their obligations under New START in that regard. They are just not at this moment allowing the United States to exercise its right to on-site inspection under the treaty. So this is a problem, and that's a problem many would point to, that the Russians have a history of non-compliance. They violated the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty outright by building a new missile, a ground-launched missile that violated the treaty, and all NATO members agree with that fact as well as U.S. allies in in Asia as well. So that's the negative side. The negative side is that there are concerns about Russian noncompliance that have a constancy to them that I think is, is really worrying. Nevertheless, when Russia has seen it in their national interests, they have continued to abide by treaties, and that has provided some stability over time. In fact, I would underscore that I referred to the agreements between the Russian Federation and Ukraine. Those agreements Legally binding agreements reached in 1997, a package of agreements, including the naval basing agreement governing Sevastopol, those held for many, many years, 25 years they held. And I think that is a a very important fact. What it comes down to is when a new leader comes in, or in this case, a returning leader, Vladimir Putin, who is steeped in resentment and steeped in a sense of unfairness uh, that the rest of the world is, is dishing out to Russia as he sees it, then anything can happen and diplomacy falls apart. So treaties and agreements are only as good as the leaders who are implementing them. Thank you, Owen and Rose. Next, The Spectator's Matthew Paris and Nigel Bigger, the theologian and ethicist, have kindly allowed us to share an extract of their interview, which we run as a dialogue in the magazine this week. We pick up their conversation now, where Nigel tells Matthew his motivations for writing his new controversial book, Colonialism, A Moral Reckoning. Because I, 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 I mean, one of the reasons I wrote this book really stems from, from the Scottish independence referendum. As an Anglo-Scot, Scottish father, English mother, born in Scotland, I'm viscerally anti-independence. But I noticed that for some Scots, independence is a kind of cathartic cleansing of Scotland from the evils of Britain equals empire equals yes. wickedness. Yeah. 
And whatever the reasons for Scottish independence, that one is a false one because the empire was not simply evil. Mm. Uh, and, and Scots were deeply involved in it, for better and for worse. Now, I, I've noticed in, in your writing a, a particular emphasis on, on questions of uh, human rights, of the rule of law and, and all those things, where I think you're on very strong ground. I think you're on less strong ground on, on the economic case. It is quite true when we were, my family were in Rhodesia, for instance, that um, at the behest of our British masters back in, in London, uh, there was a good African education system. Uh, we administered the country well, though we had actually taken the best land for white farmers and, and pushed the Africans onto the not-so-good land. But we took our responsibilities as a colonial administrative power seriously, and I, I think our our administrators were, like their counterparts in, in Britain, good civil servants. But in the meantime, we were, as it were, raping the country for, for its economic resources. The profits that went to the big tobacco companies where the Africans laboured on the farms, the, the profits that, that went from diamond mining, from gold mining, and even more so in South Africa. These natural resources were being extracted and uh, sent away from the peoples who occupied the land and, and, and in, into the pockets, not particularly of, of the imperial governments, but of commercial organisations. Think of the Chinese. We, we know that the, the Chinese are, as they would put it, investing in Africa. They are probably bribing uh, politicians. Mm. They, they are um, probably strong-arming politicians. They're, they're not particularly popular with the African people. And they are um, leeching Africa of its natural resources. We don't approve of that. Now, see us in, instead, see us British as the 19th century equivalent mm. of the Chinese. Mm. Another fair point. So on the issue of land, I accept that particularly in southern Africa, whites took best land and blacks were often relegated to poor land. That wasn't, just lest, it, lest anyone think that was always the case, it wasn't. Mm. Um, it, there were different stories in North America and Australia, but let's stick with South Africa for the moment. So I, I concede that. In terms of the extraction of profit, I, I mean, I, I'm willing to be persuaded about that. I'm a capitalist, and I, I, I do expect that companies should retain some profit for the sake of reinvestment, etc., I think there is a problem where, where the, the profits are not, to some extent, reinvested in the country and the people that do the work. So I'm, I'm certainly willing to accept there were cases of that. Um, I took advice from the imperial historian John Darwin, from the development economist Paul Collier, and from the historian of colonial economics, Tutanka Roy, and I said, well, what's, what's an authoritative book to, to read about colonial economics? And they recommended David Fieldhouse's book, I forget what it was called, it was published in the 1990s. And Fieldhouse, first of all, says that, in general, the neo-Marxist view that colonial economics were rapine and exploitation and draining of resources in general, that view, which depends heavily on Marxist theory, doesn't stand up well against data, generally speaking. He quotes a Swiss economist, uh, Rudolf von, von Albertini, I can't remember the quotation exactly, but Fieldhouse describes as having done the, the, the most comprehensive survey of data. Uh, and I, I'm not 
sure whether, I can't remember whether the data was, as it were, empire-wide or its particular areas. I, I don't think it was just Africa. And Albertini concludes that the thinking generally of colonial economics in terms of plunder is not appropriate. Moving from Africa to, to India, uh, Tatanka Roy would say that the empire's commitment to free trade, which reigned roughly from 1840s to after the First World War, yes, uh, it, it meant that manufactured cloth from England could outcompete artisanal cloth in India and cause some some decline in cottage industries in India. On the other hand, it meant that industrialists like Tata could come to Manchester, observe manufacturing processes, take back plant and expertise to India, build cotton and steel factories that then uncompeted Manchester. Mm. So, again, I don't want to dismiss your point. I think, I think that's well taken. But I don't think it can be said to be true overall of, of the empire. It, it's a side story, and one that's seldom told, that there was always irritation in Whitehall and Westminster that uh, the profits were, were going to, in many cases, international yes. companies like De Beers, for instance, and yes. that the cost of administering our colonies uh, was being borne by the British taxpayer. That's why Cecil yeah. Rhodes was never very popular in London. Yes, I guess that's, that, what, that's one of the downsides if you're supporting the free market, free flow of capital, that's one yes. of the downsides. And I, yes, I guess we still have some of that today. Yes, <laughs> With yeah. International conglomerates making profits in, in, in the UK, but offshoring themselves in Dublin or somewhere. Yeah. I, I was educated in, in um, then southern Rhodesia to see Rhodes as a, Cecil John Rhodes as a, a fairly unambiguously heroic figure. On the other hand, he was, he was not all that popular in, in, uh, back at home in, mm. in London, and people have said that gradual occupation of large parts of southern Africa happened in a fit of absence of mind. It wasn't really led by any kind of moral or civilising mission civilatrice idea, but, but often led by mm. British opportunists and the government following yeah. uh, behind. And then, then there's the Marxist view, you know, which is just a, a particularly clever weapon of, uh, of international capitalism. What's your view? My view is that there was an absence of a single mind. Yeah. <laughs> there were many minds. Yeah. And so the, the, the kind of Marxist conspiracy theory just doesn't fit the data. So the, the motives for empire were multiple. I mean, you, trade was a basic one. What's wrong with that? Then you've got, in terms of migration to New England, your religious refugees. Uh, you've also got people from Scotland and Ireland fleeing famine. <laughs> then you've got you've got war and strategic considerations. A lot of bits of the empire, like Cape Colony, fell into Britain's lap at the end of the Napoleonic Wars mm. or thereabouts. Uh, and then you do, then you do have in the nineteenth century you do have genuine humanitarian idealism and mission, whether it's anti-slavery, whether it's abolishing sati or human sacrifice. So there's no the uh, and and yes you, you you've got greed and and you've got you've got yeah. the, the sheer love of lording it over other other people I mean, for sure. If I could just interrupt <laughs> there for a moment, Marxism does not require a single presiding intellect. Yeah. To blame, Marxism says that where where uh, there is money uh, plunder to be gained, uh, people will 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 go for it. That's all Marxism says. Okay, fine. So okay, so so pl plenty of people wanting to make money. I, I, I myself have no objection to that as such. Although, in some cases, and roads included, uh, some people 
make money without many scruples. So there was certainly that, but but there was also a lot more. That wasn't wasn't the only motive. And and colonial government, it's not true that colonial government was always in hock with capitalists. Often colonial government tried to protect native industries against foreign foreign investors and and, and companies. So the Marxists are right with regard to one set of motives, but they're not right to think that that was the whole or the central the driving story. Just on, on, on while we're on roads, although I've defended roads so that his statue may remain standing in, in Oxford, uh, I've done that not because if, you know, if I were going to raise a statue to the empire, it wouldn't be Rhodes, because he was a very, I, I think, morally ambiguous character. There was an element of rascality about certainly Rhodes. Was, yes. Certainly was, yeah. certainly was, certainly uh, was. And, and uh, the only reason I def- I, I've defended the, 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 the statue remaining standing is that so much has been projected onto him about the evils of empire. If it were to fall, it would it would mean the triumph of a very distorted view of history. That's why I oppose it. Yeah. Uh, when I was in Cape Town in December, I went up to Rhodes's memorial, which I have to say looked rather fascist. But I, I observed that um, his his bronze face has been repaired. And um, when we were there on a Saturday, there was a, a a group of folk having their wedding photographs taken in front of it. So, so not everyone in South Africa thinks it should fall. Apparently, it's quite a popular place to have wedding photographs taken. <laughs> Thank you, Matthew and Nigel. Finally, Neil Clark writes this week that greyhound racing should not be banned, following the news that the RSPCA has changed its position on the sport. He joins me now alongside Vanessa Hudson, leader of the Animal Welfare Party. Neil, could you start by telling us why you oppose the RSPCA's change? Well, it's very interesting, actually, because the RSPCA has been working for many years with with the greyhound industry on animal welfare issues, and there's been great progress made. And I know that industry insiders were quite shocked by the RSPCA's total change because they've gone from supporting the sport on an animal welfare basis and and working with, with the industry to improve areas of concern to actually calling for the first time in their history for a complete ban. And why have they done this? Well, I spoke to Dr. Sam Gaines of the RSPCA, and she was she told me that uh, basically it was for a number of reasons. She said that participation in the sport is inherently dangerous, and the sport itself, although she did acknowledge, has made a lot of progress still, that the dangers are too high, she argued, and that the welfare issues cannot satisfactorily be resolved. But... I would beg to differ with all those points. I think that the uh, safety has improved. Uh, In fact, the fatalities of greyhounds on the racetrack has always been very rare, and it's actually gone down. It's actually halved from 0.06% to 0.03% from 2018 to 2021. And as for welfare, the the main, you know, the main gripe, the main concern a lot of people had, and it was legitimate with greyhound racing, was what happens to the dogs when they retire. Well, you know, when their racing careers are finished. And that was always an issue. You know, uh, quite a few did end up being shot, unfortunately, in the old days. But things have moved on. 2020, the Greyhound Board of Great Britain introduced a wonderful new scheme, the Greyhound Retirement Scheme, it's called, whereby the board and the owners contribute £200 each to a retirement fund for the Greyhound to find it a home. And enormous, enormous strides have been made in rehoming Greyhound. So all the issues that the animal welfare groups might have had with greyhound racing, I think have been addressed. That's why it's baffling that the RSPCA now has come out. And I can only probably explain it by thinking that the it's a shift to a more animal rights position as opposed to an animal welfare position. 
Vanessa, I'm sure you would like to respond to that. Uh, what would the main objections to greyhound racing be from animal welfare groups such as the Animal Welfare Party? Well, it's a very interesting position. I have to say that I would disagree with almost every point being made there. So Neil believes that the the kind of uh, the safety aspects of the sport have improved over recent years. But I, I just do not see how you could look at the figures we have today, the figures released by the, the Greyhound Board of Great Britain, and see those figures as showing improvement or, or being in some way acceptable. So if we just look at 2021 alone, we've got the deaths of 359 registered greyhounds. Of those deaths, you could possibly say that 52 of them were due to natural causes or terminal illness. That still leaves 307 deaths that were not due to natural causes. And I cannot think of any other sporting discipline in for humans where we would accept the deaths of 307 athletes per year here in the UK. It just, there's no way we would accept that. And if we're trying to say it's got safer, well, the injury rate last year, 2021, we had 4,422 injuries. And as a percentage against total runs, that's no improvement at all on 2018, which is three years earlier. So I don't see how we can say this is getting better or getting better to the point where we find it acceptable. Now, to Neil's point that this is more about animal rights than animal welfare, I'm not sure that we can really make some kind of important, useful distinction there. Many of us believe that the racing of greyhounds is quite simply speciesist and that it has no place in 2023. And that is to say that we are prioritising the needs of one species, in this case, the needs of humans over the needs of other species. I would say, and many others would say, that animals exist quite simply for their own purposes. They're not ours to use for whatever we see fit, entertainment, pleasure. And using them in this way as racing tools is to prioritise our own needs or desires for entertainment over their needs. It's inherently dangerous and it's unacceptable. I can't think of a single human sport where we would accept this level of injury and death. Wow. I mean, I don't, I mean, I would disagree with every one of those points. If we go on the stats, as I said, the, the, the official stats show that national track fatalities have halved from 2018 to 2021. I go great racing. I've been five times. I think this, this season, I, I've only seen one dog from about 300 having some kind of injury afterwards. And that dog would have received the best possible veterinary care. As for this argument that uh, about speciesism, look, the greyhound, if you put a greyhound in a field and see a hare, the gre- uh, and he sees a hare, the greyhound will chase the hare. Dogs chase hares. Dogs chase animal, uh, other animals, smaller animals. Cats do. Cats chase mice. This idea that this is something totally unnatural and weird is quite absurd. You know, the electric hare comes out, the greyhounds who are bred to race, race after it. End of story. Very, 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 very small number, unfortunately, may be injured or fatally injured. Very, very small numbers we're talking about here. Uh, the implications of what Vanessa has said, I think, need to be you know, brought home to people. Is she is saying she's basically saying there's no moral grounds for having any animals involved in any sports at all. Well, that ends show jumping, equestrianism, that ends horse racing, fishing, presumably as well. That, that would end a whole lot of, uh, of pastimes. And so really, you'd be talking not just about a ban of greyhound racing. You'd be talking about a ban of all those other sports to any sports that involve animals. Is that what, can I ask Vanessa if that's what she actually wants? Personally speaking, Neil, I object to 
the commercial use of animals for our entertainment, pleasure and financial gain. I think we have no business doing that. And yes, that's the basis of my argument. But even if that were not the point that I'm coming from, I don't think many people sitting here in the UK, knowing the life of greyhounds from birth to death, would be supportive of the real life that they have, the way they live and the way they die. There are far too many welfare concerns from birth to death in the life of a racing greyhound for any compassionate soul to really agree with that and say, yes, that sits well with me. The only reason this has gone on so long is because the worst aspects have been hidden. But now we've gradually become to know more and more about the reality for greyhounds. And as a compassionate society, which I believe we are, most of us quite simply reject that. I'd like to talk a little bit about this idea that the greyhound rehoming scheme has somehow made everything better, because I really don't think it has. I think it's pushed problems elsewhere. So as you probably know, we have this £200 payment paid by the trainer, £200 matched by the Greyhound Board of Great Britain. That goes to the the charity organisation that rehomes the greyhounds, if that's what happens to them. That's £400. And that well, as as it may be obvious to to many, doesn't cover the full cost of looking after this greyhound. It may cover the kenneling or the food. It doesn't cover veterinary bills. So those costs are being picked up by the charity themselves or the organisation. And who funds those charities or organisations? It's us, the general public, ordinary people. So it's just one of the many ways in in which this industry is dysfunctional and it's exploitative as well. Exploitative of the dogs in the beginning and then later on exploiting the good nature of the general public here in the UK. And this is an industry that can afford to look after these animals. You know, this industry had a a turnover of, I think it's 1.6 billion in 2019. So this is the general public, everyday people picking up, picking up the bill for this industry when it can't it doesn't want to pick up the bill itself. Neil, what do you what do you say to that in terms of the industry not taking care of the animals? Do you do you do you agree with Vanessa's analysis then? I spoke to, with Kevin Boothby, who's the promoter at Oxford Stadium, and uh, I interviewed him, and he said he he's he's an absolute dog lover. He's a greyhound lover. He not only runs Oxford Stadium, he has greyhounds as pets. After racing, he makes sure the dogs are safely retired, etc. And he, you know, he made that point that that had these arguments, were these arguments being made, say, in the 50s and 60s, he would go along with a lot of them. He said the sport wasn't in a great place then uh, on welfare issues, but the sport has moved on. The sport has has worked with animal welfare organisations like the RSVCA to make the sport better for greyhounds and, and to address those legitimate concerns. And having done that, now we get the call for a ban. It seems to me rather strange that, that this has come up now when the sport has never been better at actually looking after dog welfare. The dogs love to race. If you go to see Greyhounds, I wonder if Vanessa has actually been, you can see how much they enjoy the racing. They're bred to race. They have a lovely life. They're well looked after. And I, I think of all the, all the issues, and I, I support animal welfare. I used to be a member of the RSPCA. I think of all the targets, I think this would be incredibly way down the list, if, if on the list at all. It wouldn't be on my list at all of issues where animal welfare came up there's far more other you know abandoned pets etc than greyhound racing so i think it's rather bizarre that all of a sudden we've got this great surge coming up from from certain groups against greyhound racing and try and trying to ban it it seems to me completely not acknowledging where the sport is now i mean mark bird became the head of this gbgb a few years ago and he said becoming md 
my number one priority is animal welfare, dog welfare, and he's made a number of changes. And it seems as if, you know, people like Vanessa are just ignoring that and not acknowledging the sport has moved with the times. Well, I think the sport would like us to think that it's improved and moved on, but the figures speak for themselves. 307 dogs dying last year, not due to natural causes, but due to the fact that they took part in the greyhound racing activity. 4,422 injuries due solely to the fact that these dogs have been used for racing. Those figures speak for themselves. I mean, there is, I don't see the point of trying to claim that the industry's improved, that we've got, you know, we can compare those injury rates per year. Those injury rates haven't improved since 2018. And I think that's the very reason that organisations like the RSPCA for a while were prepared to work with the Greyhound Board of Great Britain to try and realise some improvements, have realised that that is, has become a, a kind of lost cause. It isn't possible with this self-regulating industry. They've decided that enough is enough. They've put enough time and effort into it. And now the only thing to call for is a phase out. And I, I'm in agreement with that. We need a phase out. The reality is this, this so-called sport is in decline around the world. We've only got seven countries left where it's still taking place. And public opinion is very much in favour of us ending it. You know, September 2021, a YouGov poll said 91% of the population don't follow or participate in greyhound racing. And 64% believe the sport is unimportant to British culture. And then just last year, December the 6th, we had a panel-based poll which said 60% of Scots want lawmakers to phase out greyhound racing. And that was despite those asked being aware of the so-called welfare improvements that have been made over the last few years. So the public is already saying, we don't really want this anymore. Uh, it's, it's a very small minority now that want to keep this going. And I'm afraid the way of the world, the way of progress for all cultures is that we eventually stop doing those things that don't serve us and don't reflect the way we want to show up in the world. And greyhound racing is a very good example of that. Something that belongs in another era. Thank you, Neil and Vanessa. And that's it for this week. As ever, if you've enjoyed the podcast, why not pick up a copy of The Spectator to read all the stories in full? I'm William Moore, and I do hope you'll join me again next week. <laughs>